Hi, I'm Laura Mize, pediatric speech-language pathologist, and welcome to Teach Me to Talk, the podcast. Today, we are continuing with part two in our series of identifying and treating speech intelligibility issues in toddlers. And so last week, we talked about, which was show number 373. If you haven't watched that show yet, go back and watch that show, because that's actually part one, and today builds on that information. But what we did last week is we took five factors that that really let us know is speech intelligibility a problem for the child that we're talking about today once we've already decided yeah this is a problem that child did not meet those five factors or he did meet those five factors and let's just review those really quickly meaning that he fell within or he did not fall within the intelligibility level as other children his age He had numerous vowel errors or widespread deletion of initial consonants or he substituted the back consonants K and G or H, a glottal sound, for a variety of other consonants or he deletes final consonants after three. Those were the five big factors that let us know, yeah, this toddler has a speech intelligibility problem that warrants intervention. And so once we've decided that, we still have another step in the decision-making process. And now what we want to do with this kid that we think, yeah, he, he's, he's failing to meet what we would consider to be the basic criteria for speech intelligibility in a child, a young child, even a toddler his age. So then we still have to do another step before we begin therapy. We still have to decide, is this individual child ready to work on speech intelligibility and that is such an important issue that we as speech language pathologists face every single day because so much of the time we decide with the child yeah there's a speech intelligibility problem but I've got all these other issues that are actually more important these fires are bigger (laughs) these are things that I need to address even more than these speech intelligibility issues. So I have a list of seven guidelines that let me know, gosh, speech intelligibility just is not rising to the top yet. I need to wait a little bit. And so as a parent, this might be just the information that you need to hear because you may have wrung your hands and just been so worried, sick about your child, about how how unintelligible he is or you know I can understand it but nobody else is and then maybe you were talking to your therapist and you were saying I don't understand why you're not working on this I thought this was speech therapy and your therapist is saying to you yeah but we're still worried about this or this is more important maybe just maybe this show will help you understand and help you also pull together that information so that you can Uh, have those conversations with your therapist or so that you can feel some relief or some resignation in that yeah we've got to work on these other things first maybe I've been focused on the wrong thing if you're a therapist this show may be wonderful for you in helping you explain to parents why we're not focused on articulation yet and I don't think I've said this yet in this show so let me go ahead and say 
what is articulation? It's getting all the right sounds in all the right places. And that's how I explain that to parents because sometimes they don't really get what we're working on in therapy. They, they just think speech therapy. Of course, that's that my child will pronounce the sounds correctly. When we know as therapists, there are so many other things that go into that. And actually, for us as early interventionists or those who focus in pediatrics, language or what a child says is always more important than how he says it. And when I get to the point that I can focus on our tick, I feel like, whew, you know, I am home free here because that is super picky compared to all the things that we're going to be talking about in this show. And actually all these things, all these seven guidelines that I'm sharing, these things will always be more important and will always be higher up the priority list than working on speech intelligibility. So again, super important information, not only for parents so that you can understand your own child, but even more so for therapists so that you can explain it to lots and lots and lots of parents of the kids that you're seeing now who are currently on your caseload and then all those kids in the years to come. So let's talk about this. Now this is course number 374 and I call it to treat or not to treat because that's basically what we're deciding. These are guidelines for determining when a child is developmentally ready to work on speech intelligibility. So let's just dive right in here and look at these seven factors. Now, for me, I begin with the most obvious, which is number one, our guideline number one, or the factor number one, and then I'll give you a general guideline. So factor number one is a child's age. And our general guideline that we're using here is, a child should be at least 30 to 36 months old, so two and a half to three, before we begin to devote a lot of time to analyzing and treating speech intelligibility. Now, let me just say, if you are noticing that I am looking down, my source for this is Functional Phonology, which is actually one of my therapy manuals. I released it in the fall of 2018, but it's a language-based approach for treating speech intelligibility problems in very young children pulled together all the latest research and all the research that I've found most beneficial for me since I focus on just our youngest little friends, our kids in that birth to three range, maybe sometimes a little older, birth to four, uh, with looking at overall ability to communicate. And so this book focuses on speech intelligibility and all the information that we are discussing in our uh, eight-part series this summer on speech intelligibility is in this book. So if you want to read more in-depthly or get the references, you can find that in the therapy manual and the link is there below. And again, it's called Functional Phonology and the fun F-U-N is emphasized because that's the most important part. We won't talk a lot about that today, but in the weeks to come and the other uh, parts of the parts of this series, you'll certainly hear about that. So today, let's get back to this. What's the first factor when we are thinking treat or not to treat? Is this kid ready to work on speech intelligibility? So we said he should be at least 30 to 36 months old before we devote a lot of time to that. So why is that? And let me just use an example from my own professional career. Now, I went to school back in the last century, 1980s and 1990s, uh, when I got my master's. And if somebody had said to us, my whole entire class, ladies, you're gonna get a kid in clinic and he is two years, three months, and he is here for speech. He is here to work on articulation. We would have just laughed and laughed and laughed and laughed and thought, oh, 
our professor is joking. She is trying to pull one over on us. There is no way we would work on our tick with a kid that young. And why is that? Because they're just not mature enough. They're, just, they're still in that toddler face. They're just not developmentally there yet. It would be the same to me as saying, I'm going to teach her how to write cursive. Not just write, but write in cursive. But just like everything else, our guidelines and our milestones, we've pushed things back. We've got these great early intervention programs, which are phenomenally important to children and to families. But at the same time, we've pushed some of these expectations back a little bit to the point where sometimes it's just a little unrealistic. And so for me, I don't really focus on intelligibility with a child until they've reached that between two and a half and three. And I don't want you to misunderstand me here though. I'm saying treat speech sound errors, meaning that I spend most of my time with that child focusing on how can I modify or how can I change how this child produces a sound. So that's different than facilitating. And so by facilitating, what's facilitating? What is the difference here? Facilitating is just doing what we all do as parents. We are modeling. So if we hear a kid say, or baby, a toddler, mispronounce a word, what do we do? We just model the correct word and we emphasize the correct way to produce that sound or sounds that a child has misarticulated or mispronounced, <clears throat> excuse me, when he's trying to say the word. And cueing, that means that we provide gentle but specific but really easy directions. For a kid, we might say something like, hey, get your lips together when you say that. Put your lips together. Say, buh, buh, buh. And so, again, those modeling and cueing, that is completely different to me than super, super more formal, heavy-handed treatment techniques. Of course, it is never too early to correctly model a word that a child has mispronounced or provide some age-appropriate guidance for how to pronounce the correct sound. And so don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying that we don't pay any attention and that we never, if we hear a kid say, uh-uh, for cookie, that we're not saying, oh, you want cookie. You need a cookie. Oh, let's get a cookie. Because then we've modeled, he's, he's just used, he's left off the k in both cases, so he's omitted an initial consonant and a medial consonant, and then he's changed the second consonant, it should have, or the second vowel, it should have been an E instead of an U, uh. and so we didn't say to him, no, you have mispronounced cookie, and you cannot get a cookie until you say it correctly. That would be more of a treatment focus and more of a formal approach with that where we are really in his little face and saying, I want you to do this. And that is completely different than just that, that gentler, more facilitative context where we are modeling and we're doing some gentle cueing. And again, I don't think it's ever too early to do that. And I do that with every kid gently and lightly that I'm working with, even when I know, gosh, a speech intelligibility or an articulation focus is way down the line for us, I'm still providing these kinds of things. But what I mean is for me to devote a lot of intervention time to this, a child really, I need to look at his age and his maturation level, and he needs to be at least at that two and a half to three-year-old uh, phase for that. And again, it's just that simple that simple, is he mature enough? Is he cognitively ready? Here's another problem with that. 
when we over focus on speech intelligibility or when we prematurely address this it can just lead to all kinds of problems that i don't want anything to do with we can we can actually promote a plateau in a kid's progress and that would be not only his progress with speech development or speech maturation or getting the right sounds in the right places, but also his language. So I've seen picky, picky parents who just all of a sudden start to just hyper-focus on a sound. And, it, and usually it's something that's pretty important to them. Let's say it's a kid's name that he can't pronounce. Let's say that his name is um, Mikey, and he says Ikey. And so mom and dad are just beside themselves because they really need him to say Mikey. And so they are on him all the time. And you sort of start to see some negativity develop and then that morphs into some frustration. And then that gets to be not only is he upset when his parents try to get him to say his name, now he's upset when they try to get him to say anything. And then sometimes um, the therapist kind of makes that worse. They'll say to a parent, well, let's just double down. Come on. This is how we do it. This is how we cue it. And then everybody's on this poor little baby all day long. And you think, no wonder he is miserable because he's just getting picked apart and picked apart and picked apart. And so we have to be super, super careful. And so when we start to focus on articulation prematurely, kids let us know. I mean, we'll start to see problematic behaviors that we've never noticed before. They may be more negative. If you're a therapist, and you're going to their home, they may start crying when they see you coming in the door <laughs> versus when you're leaving, which is, you know, that would be, you don't want kids to cry, but if they're going to cry, it needs to be that you're leaving instead of when they see you when you're coming. And so any kind of things that you haven't noticed before, if you start to focus on articulation with a child and really really helping him change the way he says words but you start to see all kinds of things that you've never ever seen before that are more avoidance or escape or he's just not happy with you or he used to love you but now he can he can barely tolerate you back off because he is telling you I am not ready and so what do you do you work on other things you figure out other things to work on and we're certainly going to talk about that because rarely is it just a developmental the age thing. Sometimes there are other issues going on, especially if a child has been a late talker, especially if there was a problem in the beginning, if he didn't start to acquire words on time. That's even more of an indicator there that we might need to wait a little longer. So anytime that there's been another developmental delay, you, you always need to consider this developmental age just as carefully as you would a child's chronological age. So let's summarize this first guideline here. We are going to wait until a child is at least two and a half to three years of age before we formally target articulation. And if there are other developmental problems, we might wait even longer. And if we see more behaviors develop that are more negative or problematic, we're going to wait even longer. And again, that's just... Uh, a common sense perspective there and I'm sure a lot of therapists who are listening will agree with me sometimes it's too early and so we have to really really analyze that on an individual basis so that was number one let's move on to number two what's the second factor when we are determining if a child is ready for formal articulation therapy the general guide and this refers to a child's language skills so the general guideline is 
about language is that a child should understand and use language at or near an age-appropriate level before we begin to target speech intelligibility. And so by far, by far, this is the most important guideline. Age is right there, but actually for me, language is a little bit higher. And so before I devote any therapy time to speech intelligibility, I've got to make sure that language is going first. Now, if you listen to part one of this series, or if you have heard me teach other courses here on YouTube, or been to my website, Teach Me to Talk, or heard me live or some of uh, a course on DVD, I say all the time, I am a language, 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 language therapist. So what does that mean? If you're a parent, you may have no idea what I mean by that. Language is always what a child is trying to say. And what a child is trying to say is always more important than how he says it. And so we're really getting down into the how when we're talking about speech intelligibility. And we, we might sometimes ignore the what or not give as much focus on the what versus the how. And so I said it a lot in part one of this show, and I'm going to say it this whole entire series so that we always remember that what a kid is trying to say is always, always more important than how he tries to say it. So looking at this language piece, we've got a couple of different things to consider here. And if you're a parent, you may not have had someone formally explain this to you before, so I want to help you understand this. And if you're a therapist, you know this. This is just <laughs> speech therapy 101. But you may not be explaining this to parents, and you may realize today, listening to this course, this is something I don't say. This is something I, that's not part of my little script when I meet with parents the first time or two. So I need to add this. This, this is going to help sharpen my my skill set here today, this is the most important so far takeaway piece for me from this course, is making sure that I explain to parents the difference between speech and language so that they understand it. So speech, again, is getting all the right sounds in the right places. So it's your speech production, how you actually say the word. So if the word is supposed to have a B sound, did a kid say B? You know, that's the thing. Or intelligibility. Did I know what he said? If he's trying to say ball, could I understand that it was ball? Even if he left off, even if he left off the L, did I get that he was, what he was talking about? Did I understand him? So that's what we mean by speech. The language part of that is actually a child's vocabulary or how he combines his words to make little phrases and sentences. And it also includes not only what a kid says, <clears throat> but what a kid understands. So let's talk about that too. So then we have speech and language, but then with language, we also break that down into two big components. So the comprehension part or the understanding part. And speech language pathologists refer to this as receptive language. So what a child receives, how well does he get and process what he hears somebody else say? So that's the receptive piece. And the second piece of that is expressive. So what can a kid say? And even if he's not talking yet, what can he convey? by his facial expressions, by his gestures, so those nonverbal methods that we all use, or even something a little more technical than that if a child is using a sign language, or if he's using a picture communication system like PECS, or if he's using an AAC device, or a speech generating device where he pushes a button and the little computer or the app talks for him. That's also expressive. So what can he express? What can he convey? And so for me, when I'm looking at a child's language skills here, I want to know, 
can he understand and use language close to what we expect for his age? And until he can do that, I'm not even going to think about this speech part because the language part is always so much more important. And if I'm looking at receptive and expressive, hey, receptive is where I'm going to look first because we want a child to be able to understand what I'm talking about. So think about this for a minute as a, as a parent. If, a if we want to change how a child says a word, how are we going to do that? We're going to tell him. We're going to give him specific directions like open your mouth when you say that sound or close your lips or show me your teeth or pull your tongue up so you're saying at the back of your throat. We're giving really specific directions. So if a kid can't follow directions like Go get your shoes. Put your cup in the sink. Or you want me to read Goodnight Moon? That book is in your room. Go get it. If a kid can't follow those directions, do you see how it would be a complete waste of time for a therapist to try to sit with him and teach him how to change how he says a word? That is just common sense. He has got to understand directions and be able to listen and then complete that direction well, long before we start worrying about trying to correct how he says a word. And so let's just talk about this. So the very best way, just an informal way that you as a mom or dad at home right now can measure whether your child is really ready to begin to focus on speech intelligibility is, does he follow directions as well as other toddlers his age? And so those things that I talked about, those really common directions like bring me your shoes or go find your book or it's time to take a bath, let's go to the bathtub. Those kinds of things in daily routines, if your child is not doing that, again, working on, on these kinds of picky speech intelligibility things are just, you're just way premature on that. So we need to be really, really careful about that. Typically developing toddlers follow those kinds of routine directions by the time they're 18 months old. So if you're sitting here with a two and a half year old that you're feeling like, gosh, he's really, I don't understand what he says a lot of the time, but he's not doing basic directions yet oh please 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 switch your focus and work on that receptive language piece first all right so let's talk about what happens when a parent says well it's not that he doesn't understand what i'm saying he just won't do it and so they are assigning a negative behavior that they are thinking that a child is refusing to participate they'll call a child They'll say that a child is stubborn or that he's lazy or that he doesn't listen. Gosh, so many times when that's happening, a parent is really overestimating what a child can do. We can never, as therapists or as parents, give our children credit developmentally for things that we do not see them do. And I, I, sometimes I've even kind of thought about it this way with a parent when they're sitting there saying something like, he can do that when I have a pretty good feeling that he can't. It's just like, you know, can a child run? versus is he going to try out for the Olympics tomorrow? There's a big difference in that child's ability or his uh, that whole quality kind of thing there. This is what happens a lot. Let's say that um, we'll really be assessing a child, and especially with uh, receptive language, and so we're saying things like, you know, following directions like give the baby a bite if we're playing with a baby doll, or... Um, 
you know, make, make your car go in the garage. And a child never, ever, 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 ever follows those kinds of directions. And then a parent will say, well, I know he understands that. He does that all the time. You know, there's a real difference in how a child directs his own behavior and what he wants to do, his own little agenda, versus whether he's really processing verbal directions. And so as a parent, again, it's so easy to overestimate because we do that out of love and devotion to our children. We sometimes have blinders on and don't really see objectively what they can and can't do. So really, really, really be just as super honest as you can about this. And don't don't call a complaint a child's comprehension problem don't think it's just a lack of compliance or a behavior problem or he's he's just you know mean or stubborn or whatever you want to do please don't do that because it's so important again that we see children that we see what their real deficits are so that we can address it and that we can help them get better you know children must understand words before they say words and then before they we understand their words, they have to be trying to say them. But the very first piece of this is receptive language. So I don't want you to miss this at all, especially if you're a parent. And if you're a therapist, that's how you explain it to a parent. You just talk about the importance of receptive language and how really, really, really it's the foundation even for speech intelligibility, because how in the world can we expect a child to pronounce a word correctly? He's got to say it first, and then before that, he's got to understand it. So that's how we explain that to parents. Now, let me just say, too, that um, lots of children, lots of children um, who have speech delay are missed because we miss that receptive language piece. So I want you to pay super, super close attention to that. And when we have a diagnosis like Down syndrome or cerebral palsy or any other kind of neurological diagnosis, they may be even older that we are really still not seeing this this receptive language uh, evidence. And so we have to really use this same benchmark. It's following simple routine directions in everyday routines before we even begin to think about speech intelligibility. All right, that was the receptive language piece. Now let's move on to expressive language. Most toddlers with unintelligible speech are also going to have expressive language delays too. So remember that expressive language meant that a child's able to convey a message. And so it could be with words. We want it to certainly be words. And if we're thinking about speech intelligibility, it's words. They have to be talking before we can change how they talk. Um, but, you know, having that delay in expressive language is inevitable when no one understands what you're trying to say. So the important thing when we're looking at expressive language is, is the child trying to talk? Is he trying to intentionally communicate? What does he do, even when he's not using words, to let you know that he's trying to get you to do something for him or to share a message with you. And so we have to really pay attention to that. And a big thing with this is how intentional is his communication? And so is he intentionally trying to talk to you? Is he purposefully trying to direct your behavior? And you want to do that not just with him. You don't think he's manipulating you by crying or anything like that. I'm talking about physically trying to take you somewhere, trying to show you something, trying to use his little face or his gestures point, those kinds of things. 
when we have children who are not doing any of that yet, when there's not a lot of intentionality there, that is a much bigger issue. And again, a child has to be talking before we can correct how they produce the word. The evidence-based practice guideline for this that I like to use is Dr. Caroline Bowen says that, and she is a speech pathologist from Australia, has a great website, speech-language-therapy.com. And I might have just misspoken and given you uh, the wrong website, but you can look in the reference section and the resources section on the last slides of this presentation and get it right. But she says that a kid has to have at least 25 spontaneous and established words before we can even begin to analyze patterns. And so that's certainly one guideline that you can use with expressive language. Does he have that very minimal vocabulary before I would begin to do it? And, and lots of therapists may kind of question that and they'll say, well, I know, I just know that he has an official speech diagnosis like apraxia, which is a motor planning disorder or dysarthria, a muscle tone disorder. So his speech is slurred. And so a, a therapist might say, you know, I'm really gonna work on this because I know because of his medical diagnosis that he's likely to have apraxia or, you know, he will have dysarthria because of these muscle, this low muscle tone that I see throughout his body. Let me just get this speech going first to get language going. I completely disagree with that because I think that you're putting the cart before the horse there. And so lots of times therapists think that they want to prevent any further problems. You know, let's teach him how to say it right while we're teaching him how to say it. Okay, but you can't really control that. So I am always in the language, language, language camp, like I said before. What a kid is trying to say is always more important than how he says it. So we have to be super, super careful about that. Another thing that we can do when we're looking at expressive language is to, and make it little, a little less subjective here, is to use some broader developmental milestones. So we could look at vocabulary size. Now we've done that with Dr. Bowen's reference, but we can also do that with what we, if we're using what typical language development is. And so I like to use the guidelines from Lingua Systems Guide to Communication Milestones as the uh, approximate vocabulary size. And so, now let me just say, if you're a parent, do not freak out when I share these numbers because they're pretty, uh, they're, they're based on typical development and not on the same numbers that your therapist or that your doctor might have shared. So an average or typically developing 18 month old uses 50 words, has 50 words in their spoken vocabulary. A 24-month-old actually uses 200 to 300 different words. A 30-month-old has about 450 words in their vocabulary. And a three-year-old, a 36-month-old has about a thousand words. So again, if you're the parent of a late talker, you might just really panic and freak out about that. But you got to know what the norm is. And so for me, for working with speech intelligibility, especially with a kid who's had a lot of other problems, I want to make sure that their vocabulary is, is steadily increasing and moving toward those numbers. And so a lot of times I, I, I'm on the later side of working on our tick formally. And remember, I told you back in that first guideline that we'll do a lot of facilitative things, but as far as really, really, you know, the down and dirty artic where I'm just writing their little faces and, and really doing everything I can formally to change how they say the word, if they don't have a good enough vocabulary size, I'm not going to bother yet. So that's certainly one other guideline or factor that you can use for that. 
Now, let me say another word about um, those vocabulary numbers that I just gave. That really was for typical development. And so for us as therapists, you know, we're always concerned about eligibility requirements. Does a child qualify for my program? So our standards are a lot more generous or a lot lower than those standards. You know, as a therapist, especially if you're not a speech-language pathologist, if you're an OT or a PT or an early interventionist or teacher listening to this, you may be saying, I thought kids needed 50 words by 24 months, and you're telling me that typically developing kids have 200 to 300 words by 24 months. Both of those things are true. The bottom range of normal is that 50-word, that 50-word um minimal vocabulary by the time you turn 24 months and so most of the time all the kids that we see you know have much 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 fewer words than 50 words because that's why you're seeing them you know that's the reason that they qualified for the program but we always have to keep in mind not that you know functioning at the 10th percentile which uh, a child wouldn't even qualify for therapy most of the time we see children who are below the fifth percentile in functioning so you have to think about looking at a kid who's way up in the 50th percentile and 75th percentile and closer to the top of that bell curve they have lots and lots and lots and lots and lots of words so just be careful when you're looking at language here that a child has an established vocabulary before we really begin to think about treating um, speech intelligibility with that. Okay, language is also more than vocabulary size. So it's more than the number of words that a kid uses. So that if a kid comes in and let's say that he already, let me just give you an example. I saw a little girl years ago who when she turned two, she had about 200 words, but her mom still instinctively knew something is off with this. And this wasn't really a, a speech intelligibility issue, but mom just knew something was off. And so she called early intervention in my state and they were doing this screening process over the phone. And when she said that her child had 200 words, she said it was like the therapist just said, oh, no way, no way would we ever see a kid who already had 200 words. That, that, your child does not need speech therapy. But on closer inspection, most of those little girls' words, like mom would say, you know, 195 out of those 200 words were nouns. And here's the kicker. She could not use those words in everyday conversation. She could only label them in her little books or on an app. And she, even if she could see the picture of banana in her book and say banana, she could not go into the kitchen and ask for a banana. So it was a real pragmatic problem. So see, there was a real disconnect. You couldn't just use vocabulary size. And that's the same way for this indicator. A kid may have enough, technically, enough words in his vocabulary to meet these guidelines, but if I'm looking at it and I think there's no variety here, how in the world is he going to make it with words that are all just nouns? So I would have to think about, I'm still going to prioritize language here and work on, on getting him some verbs or some action words or some location words, some prepositions. That would be much, much, much more important to me than his little speech errors here and there. Another language consideration here is, is the child combining words into phrases? So I rarely work on speech intelligibility until a kid is at that phrase level. Now, sometimes par parents will say, and sometimes therapists will say, well, he can't combine the words yet. And that's why he's not moving along language-wise. And nobody understands him when he does. So we've got to work on speech intelligibility. I get that. And I might even make that, that argument for some children. But 
most of the time, I want a kid at that phrase level because that tells me his language is moving along. And so to summarize this, before we begin to target speech intelligibility, a child should understand and use language at or near an age-appropriate level. All right, let's move on to number three, social engagement. Oh, this one's so important too. It seems like everyone I'm saying, this is the most important, but this one is super important too. And let me explain. A child should easily, frequently, and happily interact with other people before we target speech intelligibility. Why is that? Because if a kid is going to spend all of his time running and running and avoiding and escaping and just doing everything he can to get away from me, there is no way that he's going to be developmentally ready for me to change how his little mouth moves so that he can produce a different sound in a word. And I hope that makes sense to you. So when we have children who don't respond to their names and who, again, don't follow directions, and because and those were kind of the big receptive language things that we were looking for, when they, and, and this not, under, not responding to your name, one-year-old should consistently and frequently respond to their names. And when we have a two-year-old or a three-year-old who's not doing that, that's a big developmental red flag. And that tells us there's a social interaction problem. And that because communicating always involves at least two people, we have got to get him to the point where he's got that nice engagement going and he's paying attention to me and we're together and we're sharing experiences and that is always 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 a more important issue than how well he produces the sounds in a word or how well I can even understand him because I've got to get that going first that engagement piece going first sometimes parents will say well this isn't this is an articulation problem because I hear my kid kind of talking a blue streak and he's just trying to talk and trying to talk and trying to talk but nobody ever has any idea of what he's trying to say and then I listen to that child or I see that child and I realize he's using jargon or long strings of unintelligible speech and then I realize gosh that is really self-directed and so his parents aren't getting that he's not trying to communicate his verbalizations his, his talking is self-stimulatory because he's just doing his own thing and jabbering away, but it's not intentional and it's not purposeful and it's not social, so it's not directed toward another person. And so that's something that we always have to pay attention to, and that jargon can be terribly misleading for a parent because they really, really think that their child is trying to talk and that they're going to bring them to a speech-language pathologist and we're just going to get all the right sounds in the right places and they're suddenly going to be talking in paragraphs when that's not really true at all. So let's talk about how we separate purposeful jargon from non-purposeful. Purposeful jargon is when a kid's looking right at you and maybe they're trying to get your attention they're pulling on you they again their eye contact is beautiful and another indicator for purposeful jargon is that there may be a real word in that utterance somewhere so usually it's like blah 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 mama and so you they're saying something 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 and directing it to mom or they may start with a real word like hey like they're getting your attention and then blah, 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 you know go straight into their jargon so you've got to really think about this purposeful versus non-purposeful. And again, why is this? Because it's social. You have to have kids trying to talk to another person and communicate a message to another person. Now, this is totally different than children who are engaging in vocal play. 
and we think about that as babbling when they are infants. If a child is still doing that primarily at two and a half, it's not really an expressive language problem. It's a social problem. They don't really get that they're supposed to talk to people and that that's why they are using their little talking. And so that's something that you have to tease out. And lots of times excessive jargon use is really linked to a receptive language problem. The kid knows how to talk. He just does not understand the words. And he does not understand that words follow a sequence, a predictable sequence of sound combinations. And so again, that's a receptive language problem and a cognitive problem, not necessarily an intelligibility problem. So if you're a therapist, that's how you tease that out with a parent. And if you're a parent, I hope that made more sense to you. So other key social skills that we look for that tell us that a child is developmentally ready to work on articulation. Do they make consistent eye contact with you? Do they exhibit joint attention? That means that I point and say, look, and they try to look too. So they are following my point there. Does a child use some facial expressions and some affect to try to compensate for his, his words when you can't understand him? So that's a social skill. He's, he's using whatever he can to make sure that you know what his little message is. Will he take turns with you? And again, that's that interactive piece and that engagement piece. And is he working to get your attention? Is he initiating with you? Is he, are you, this would be a good example. Let's say you were on the phone and he, or on your iPad, and he does everything he can to get you to put that screen down. <laughs> and not just whining or crying. I mean, he is over there getting in your face, pulling the iPad away, you know, hitting you on the arm. He's working to get your attention. All of those are social skills. And when we don't have a child doing that, that's what we need to focus on because that's going to be the foundation of his progress with communication, not just how he sounds with that. So this guideline, a child is not ready to work on speech intelligibility until he frequently interacts with his parents and with other people. All right, guideline number four is an adequate attention span. Now let's talk about this for a minute. Here's the guideline. A child should be able to stay and with a play routine for several minutes before we begin to target speech intelligibility. Why is that? It kind of goes back to what I said about the social piece. If I'm spending all my time or a therapist chasing a kid around the room because he cannot sit and sustain attention, how effective is working on speech sounds going to be anyway? It's not. We've got to have that attention span in there and that ability to stay calm and regulated and pay attention and focus and listen and follow those directions. You know, all that is super, super, super important. Now, children who are always on the go miss really important opportunities to learn language and the correct speech sounds. And so again, there's, those are usually, it's usually both a speech and a language problem there. An adequate attention span is absolutely necessary for learning everything. So when we have kids that are super busy to the point that they are just bouncing off the walls, that needs to be our primary thing, is getting their little bodies regulated, getting them to the point where they can sit with you and play and read a book with you, do even some little social games with you, anything where they are staying with you for a long, longer amount of time. Now, don't misunderstand what I'm saying. It is unrealistic for us to think that we're going to put a toddler, you know, belt them in a high chair, please don't do that but that we're going to get them there and they're going to stay with us for you know, 20, 30, 60 minutes without a break. That's, that's unrealistic too. The evidence-based guideline that we use for this is by a study from a researcher named Gartner. And Gartner says that a toddler should be able to stay with you at least and sustain attention 
three to six minutes. So about five minutes. So until a kid has about a five minute minimum attention span, we're not going to worry about speech intelligibility. So if a kid abandons an activity after a minute or two, you've got to get that attention piece in line. Sometimes the attention piece also goes with this next factor, which is play skills. So here's a guideline. A child should be able to play appropriately with a variety of toys, both alone and with other people, before we target speech intelligibility. Now, sometimes a parent will look right at me and say, what does playing with toys have to do with talking? And I just always want to look right back at them and say, everything! <laughs> because how a kid plays with toys gives us such a window in, into his developing little brain. We're looking at his cognitive skills. How does he think? How does he learn? How does he plan? How does he remember? Those are all part of cognition. And so when I see that a kid can play with a barn with some pretend toys and he's got a cool racetrack and he might have some little characters like a little Woody and a Buzz doll and he has a few little books that he likes and, and he has some blocks that he's starting to really play with and he has some other little ball toys. That tells me so much about his development. And again, cognitively, he's remembering how to play with all those toys. He might start to do some pretending with those little dolls. So he's becoming symbolic. It also tells me a lot about his motor skills because he can do lots of different actions with those toys. He can push, he can pull, he can open, he can close, he can twist, he can uh, oh just do all kinds of motoric things. So that tells me how he's coming together motor-wise. Again, when a kid can pay attention like that or, or to play like that, he can usually pay attention. And so actually, I could have probably said, look at a kid's play skills and you can tell if he's ready for articulation therapy or not. That might have been a better way to do it, but I've just worked long enough to know that unless we tease out these specific skills that sometimes a parent can misinterpret you, and play is an area like this. You could say to a parent, how does a kid play? And they may say, fine. And then you start to watch them and you realize that that mom's definition of play is that she might say, my kid loves trains. He just plays with trains all day long. He just plays with trains. And I'm thinking that he's connecting the trains and he's driving the trains into the train station. And then he's making the trains interact. And he's pretending that he's washing the trains. I mean, you know, I'm coming up with all these great you know, expected actions with trains, and then I get there, or she comes to me, and I watch her little boy play with trains, and he gets right on the floor and does nothing but lay on his belly and spin the wheels and watch the wheels spin. Now, that's not that mom's fault. I mean, she's calling that play, but that's really different than what I call playing with trains. And so, again, that's a reason for why I wouldn't use play <laughs> as your standard kind of definition here because a parent's definition of that may be totally different than what a professional's definition of that would be. But just think of all the different skills that go into playing. You know, the same kind of mistake could have been made for attention that we were talking about back in the last guideline. I might say, does your child have a good attention span? And mom thinks and says... He can watch two movies back to back. That's four hours. Yeah, he can pay attention. <laughs> can you see how that's a problem too? 
He's hyper focused, and then she may not understand that otherwise, if he's not hooked on his that little screen, he's running around bouncing off the walls, and so he's not really paying attention to well enough to play with a toy or have a nice back and forth interaction with another adult or with another child, and so again, you've got to really, really explain these criteria to parents so that they understand that. So play is a super, super, super important indicator for us. And I'm not gonna worry about speech intelligibility until I have seen that a child is demonstrating appropriate play skills. And again, I use that by variety of toys, meaning that he's got a lot of different interests. He's not just fixated like a kid with autism might be, be obsessed or fixated on just a really limited or restricted range of interests there, and that he can interact and do it with others. So do you see how all these things really are combining? So that was our fifth indicator there. Our sixth indicator is how well does a child imitate? So that means how does he repeat or how does he copy? So here's our guideline. A child should be able to quickly imitate sounds and words on request before we target speech intelligibility. Well, this is just like speech therapy 101, isn't it? Because <laughs> that's what we think about when we think about speech therapy is I say to a child, you say s and then he says it, or you say k and then he says it. If a kid can't do that, if I have to spend five full minutes begging him and pleading with him and cajoling him and promising you say this one sound and then we're going to go do this other play activity for five minutes and then you say this one sound. I mean, that is totally unproductive and inefficient and I just don't want anything to do with that. <laughs> and most therapists wouldn't want to do that either because the child does not imitate quickly and frequently and consistently enough for me to be able to justify working on speech intelligibility there. And so you've got to get those imitative skills really, really, really moving along. And let's talk about this for a second. Now, I did a whole show about this. This is show number 372, and it was the best ways to teach a nonverbal toddler to imitate. And guys, therapists, you know this, but parents, you may not. That does not begin with words. We have to teach kids to imitate like all babies learn to imitate is with actions, with objects first and with body movements first long before we get to sounds. And so for some of you listening to this, you think, well, my kid's not imitating because he doesn't know the sounds. That is rarely the only reason. So you've got to really get that. And that may be true. I mean, he may not say a word because he doesn't understand how to sequence the sounds and put all that together. I get that. But the, the crux of the problem is he doesn't understand how to imitate. And so until that process is moving along really, really quickly, you can't expect a child to be super effective or super successful or the therapist really to be effective or successful in correcting articulation errors yet because he's not repeating well enough. So you may have to work on that imitative, um, that imitative skill again long before you think about speech intelligibility. And for some therapists, even if you get a kid that you think might be close to typically developing, but you get there and you cannot, he, he just will, will not imitate on command. This is where you start. You back up all the way to the beginning with imitation and really get that going before you would even think about moving on to actually being able to change how he says the word. So the guideline here was a child should quickly imitate sounds and words on request 
before we begin to target speech intelligibility. All right, here we are at factor seven. So this is our last factor, and it is a super important factor. It's an impact on a child's daily life. So speech intelligibility with a child should be significantly different than what is expected, and his speech sound errors should compromise his ability to communicate in everyday activities before we work on speech intelligibility. So what does that mean? Well, those of us who are speech pathologists and early interventionists and even parents of late talkers have to really be aware <laughs> that we cannot have higher or unrealistic expectations for a child who's on our caseload than we would any other child on the street. So remember we talked about last week and last week's show about those overall intelligibility ratings. So why in the world would we think that a child who is qualified for speech therapy would even be um, at that? It's just unrealistic. It's unrealistic to expect that a child's going to be have the same level of intelligibility or getting there. Now that's our goal and we want that certainly, but we have to really, really be realistic with this. So from a developmental perspective, is the child understood much less than other toddlers who are at the same age? And if there's a diagnosis involved, you know, we have to consider that. We have to look at that, too, with other children who have cerebral palsy. You know, how is he really measuring up to this? And again, our standard is always higher, and our standard is always we want children to have intelligible speech, and we want them to have the correct vocabulary size and all that, but we also, there's a gap there, and there's room there, and so we have to keep that in mind. So let's look at a couple of other research-based references for speech intelligibility by age for young children. Now, in last show, in 373, I gave you a general one, but I want to give you two more specific ones here. This first one's by Caroline Bowen, and I mentioned her earlier. And she says, overall intel intelligibility of children in connected speech should be, by 18 months, 25% intelligible. So parents get about a quarter of what a kid says by the time they're 18 months. By 24 months, it would be 50 to 75% intelligible. And then by 36 months, 75 to 100%. So there you go with that. The other researchers that I like to use too, Gard, Gilman, and Gorman, and they do that great speech language development chart. If you're a therapist, you need to get your hands on that because it's a great overall big picture in language development. They say 65% intelligible by age two, 70% by two and a half, 80% by age three. And that's even if there are other errors there. Because if a kid says, if there's, let's just say we have a red rabbit here and a three-year-old comes in and says, I see your web wabbit. I know he's talking about the red rabbit, even if he says a W for R. I have little friends, you know, my name is Laura, worst name in the world for a, <laughs> an early intervention speech therapist because of an L that usually doesn't come in until a four and then an R. Some kids don't get that till they're eight. And so for a kid to call me Wawa, I know in therapy when a kid says Wawa, he is trying to say my name. I just know that, even if there are errors present. And so here's my point. Even though I've now given you three different sources for intelligibility guidelines, the findings are real consistent. All little kids who are learning how to talk make errors. All little kids are sometimes hard to understand. Kids aren't understood most of the time until after age three. And again, for our little guys who've had language delays, it's even later because developmentally, 
for them, three comes later than that chronological birthday. So to me, this is a really important factor for deciding whether or not to address speech intelligibility. If a kid is close to this, I just don't even worry about it because I tell a parent, you know, maturation is going to hopefully kick in and take care of some of this for us. However, if a parent can't understand a child and when they are really trying, and, and here's, the, here's the most important thing. If a kid starts to show me that they notice, so if they are getting overly frustrated or if they, their feelings are hurt. I mean, have you ever had that happen? Just a, a little friend that you work with. I mean, sometimes they don't even notice when people don't understand them. They'll try to say the word 50 times or they're pulling a parent there. They're, they're kind of happy-go-lucky. They don't notice. But sometimes we get little friends that are that are almost embarrassed about how they talk, even when they're two or three. And those are usually really smart kids. I mean, they've got a big level of self-awareness and an awareness of you. And that doesn't happen very much. Thank you, God, that that doesn't happen very much. But when I see that, that also is an indication to me that I need to address that because that child is already aware that there are some differences. And I know that he's going to be closer to being developmentally ready because he's showing me that he already notices how he talks. So that certainly is a factor with this um, as well. So, all right, we have gotten through that list of seven readiness factors that tell us if a child is developmentally there yet, if he is where we want him to be to work on speech. And so, in the book that I told you about before, my therapy manual called The Functional Phonology, there is the coolest one-page handout that lists those seven factors. And so, let's just run through them again in summary in these final couple of minutes. The child's age, we want a child to be at least 30 to 36 months old. And age is an important factor. Why? Because it gives us an idea and predicts maturity and readiness for the kind of intense focus that we need to be able to change a how a child says a word or a pattern. And so that was the first factor. The second factor was language. Is a child's receptive and expressive language at or near an age-appropriate level? And remember, our best indicator here with receptive language is how does a child follow directions in everyday life? And then expressively, is he trying? Is he an intentional communicator? Does he have a basic vocabulary? And for me, I like that a child has 50 to about 100 words and is already using short phrases with a variety of words, a variety of vocabulary. And so to me, if a kid is not doing that yet, mm, not going to worry about speech intelligibility, I've got to work on language. And so that's our second one. Our third factor, the guideline was, does my child frequently interact with other people? And remember why was that? Because a kid has to interact with other people before they can communicate. They have to care that another person is there. They have to routinely want to be with you. They can't avoid you or escape or be, you know, try to get away from you. If they're not focused on you, they are not going to be successful with articulation therapy or a, even a phonological approach. They've, that's that one-on-one -on -one back and forth there. They've got to be able to do that. The fourth factor was attention span. Can a child stay with me for at least a few minutes without getting up and running away? If he can't, he does not have the attention span required to work on speech intelligibility. Some toddlers can. Some toddlers can really sit there. You know, they're they're sitting there longer than me. I'm the one who wants to get up and get out of there and do something different and move around. And so attention span is a big, big factor. 
The next one was play skills. Can a child play with a variety of toys appropriately on his own and with me? And remember, variety was important. And how he actually plays and what he does is important because it tells us how that child is coming together overall developmentally. How are his cognitive skills? How are his motor skills? Can he play with me and other kids? That's the social component. Is he is he trying to, you know, do pretend play? So that tells me if he's becoming symbolic. And why is that important? Because words are symbolic. That's what language is all about. You know, this isn't just a cup. You know, I mean... It, it's not it's what we call a cup cup is our symbol for that word or that symbol for that object it's the word is the symbol and so again uh, play skills super super important with that with pretending and seeing how that's coming along if a kid's not doing that he's not cognitively mature enough and so we have to think about that number six was imitative abilities can a kid copy me easily if i'm having to spend 10 minutes to get one little speech sound production we're not going to be very efficient we're not there yet we don't want to waste our time or money at that point so he's got to be able to be imitative and the last one was speech causes negativity so does that child react negatively are his parents frustrated is he frustrated that he can't be understood uh, more often so those were the seven factors so let me tell you how I use this how I use this chart for for me clinically if a kid has one or two of these areas where we're we're not there yet I think okay I can start to include some speech intelligibility strategies as part of my overall treatment plan but I need to be cleaning this other stuff up because he's not going he's not really ready and I'm not going to be as successful as I want to be or as effective as I want to be until I get these little areas going better or, or buttoned up and so I think to myself well good this has kept me on track so as a therapist this is a fantastic tool for me now it's that's great but it's even better <laughs> when there's a parent who is is really really saying hey I want my child I want my child to see you because I can't understand him when he talks and so we go through this checklist together and it's a yes or no checklist and so I know when it when a kid has all yes responses that child is definitely ready to work on speech intelligibility and I can show that parent yeah I think your child's a great candidate for this and so the when it's the opposite situation is actually when this is the best it's when a parent is just consumed and overly concerned about speech intelligibility and I can say look out of these seven factors we still have five things that we've got to work on long before we are ready to address that and this is such an objective way to do it and parents can see it and it's written in black and white and so if you struggle with that if you have a lot of parents who's who really want you working on things for their kids just aren't ready when they haven't met the prerequisites this could be a phenomenal tool for you to really show a parent and help them understand so that certainly is something that I wanted to point out in the book the other thing that you can find out in the therapy manual is even better so I've given you all these guidelines that have said this child is ready so what do you do if a child's not ready and I've already said this you work to get them ready but how do you do it I've got the instructions for you here right here and not not the whole treatment plan but certainly enough to get you started and if you are a parent at home trying to do this alone or practically alone this book will help point you in the right direction and if you're a therapist who feels like you are lost with speech intelligibility or you are lost 
helping uh, or, or explaining what you're doing and why you're doing it or why you're not ready to work on speech intelligibility yet, this is a great, great chapter, the rest of this chapter, for helping you understand what you should be working on and what you should be redirecting a parent's focus to too. So I hope that you'll get that. Uh, and you can get that information at the bottom of the post there. Look at the link. And if you're a therapist, you can now get continuing education credits for watching uh, these CE courses on YouTube. How cool is that? So look for that information below. Um, I think that's it for today. Next week, we'll pick up with part three of this series. And we're going to talk about in the next couple of shows, how we design sessions for toddlers to make that more effective, and specifically how we cue speech sounds, which will be a super, super, super important piece for you to learn, not only as a therapist, but so that you can teach parents how to do it. And if you're a parent and need to know how, then that is going to be the show for you. So stay tuned for those this summer. All right, that's all for today. I'm Laura Mize, pediatric speech language pathologist, and thank you for joining me for TeachMeToTalk.com's podcast. Thank you.